We've got terrific guests today. We'll talk about BLM leaders calling on spirits of the dead and people who are taking the gospel to the streets. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, friends, we are going to dive into the major issues today, things that are of great importance to the body, things ranging from spiritual warfare to taking the gospel to the streets. We've got wall-to-wall, back-to-back, important interviews for you. This is Michael Brown. Welcome to the broadcast. You know, last week we played some clips from another colleague's broadcast with BLM leaders, one of them a founder of the national organization, the other a local founder, talking freely about calling on spirits of the dead when they said, name, name, say the name to them. It's actually calling on the spirit of that person to rise up and empower them. I mean, you're talking about necromancy. You're talking about witchcraft. Well, we we played the clips from Abe Hamilton. Uh, Abe has his own daily show, the Hamilton episode, and Hamilton Connor, excuse me, and it airs uh, across the country on American Family Radio. Uh, he serves as general counsel and policy analyst with AFA. And in fact, we've worked together on an amazing documentary coming out next month called In His Image. Maybe we'll talk about that briefly, but I've worked with Abe, had the pleasure of spending time with him, but first time having him on the air. So Abe, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to join us today. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your program. Absolutely. So. How did you come upon this material, which has now got national attention since you exposed it, with these BLM leaders calling on spirits of the dead? Well, um, I've had my eye on this BLM movement for quite some time. Uh, my dear sister in the Lord, Mickey Addison, wrote an article all the way back in 2016 mm-hmm. explaining why the BLM organization is incompatible with biblical Christianity. And my producer and I have been keeping an eye on it, and we came across this audio I'm sorry, the video footage on Facebook from June uh, where they were discussing these things. So I actually sat on it and, you know, prayed about it and, and, and held the footage to determine whether or not I needed to, to discuss this on the radio program. And ultimately, we decided to do so uh, because I felt it was important uh, for the Hamilton Corner listeners as well as the country as a whole to hear uh, these women discussing these things in their own words. I mean, you, you heard the program. You saw that I played multiple clips of them discussing their practices and even describing uh, how this spirituality, which is rather pagan, is central to what they describe as this so-called justice work. Was it a surprise to you in any way when you actually discovered this footage? Uh, unfortunately, it was striking, but unfortunately it wasn't surprising. When yep. we all heard uh, yep. Patrice Cullors express from 2015 that they were she and several and, and, and our co-founder of the BLM, BLM organization were trained Marxists. If anybody knows anything about uh, Karl Marx himself, uh, that he uh, was dabbled in the occult himself. So it wasn't uh, surprising, but it still was striking uh, that they actually said these things in public. And even uh, one of the women speaking said, maybe we're saying too much, <laughs> communicating that they know they're doing it, but they may not want the, the public to actually know how deep they're into it. Yeah, really. And I've been on with the, the Addisons numerous times. They're an amazing couple as, as well. 
And I wrote back in 2016 that we need to separate the BLM movement from the statement that Black Lives Matter. But for folks that may not know this, you and the Addisons, you are black Americans and you have seen the wrong spirit. Now we see even more clearly the wrong spirit, but, but you have been seeing this, tracking this for, for years. What is, we'll, we'll come back to the witchcraft, the spirits of the dead thing in a minute, but on a larger level, this is a deep spiritual deception, uh, uh, touching all Americans, black and white people of all color. How would you analyze what the enemy, what Satan is trying to do through an allegedly righteous and good cause, cause for justice, and it really has a very different demonic agenda. How would you analyze that on the larger level? Well, when, when you step back, uh, you, we know that critical race theory and intersectionality are the offshoot of critical theory. Critical theory is an offshoot of Marxism in a general sense, and it's interesting to note uh, that Marxism and critical theory were, were both really worked out in an ethnically homogenous context in Europe, pretty much. Well, critical race theory was simply the application of the principles of critical theory to America's specific and, and unique context, where they sought, they seek really to highlight and exploit some of the historical atrocities and even the current tensions around the issues of skin color, but to advance an agenda that's foreign to those who may be concerned about the issues that are prevalent in our nation uh, based on skin color. A perfect example of this is if your concern is about the lives of black people in America, then why is there only a response in a very narrow context when you know a less melanated police officer is involved in a, a use of force against a more melanated person, a darker-skinned person? But which statistically, it's provable statistically, this is a very small, an extreme minority of the instances where, where black people's lives are taken. They are murdered. Uh, the most prevalent instances of these murders have nothing to do with the context that BLM organization wants to, wants to exploit, but they utilize the tension in order to advance an agenda. So uh, simply put, uh, it, it really is the manifestation of what critical theory seeks to do. It's not a movement that seeks to, uh, to reconcile or to join people together. It seeks to destroy, to divide, and to destroy, and that's exactly what's happening. And then I would simply urge for, for any Christian, uh, we don't need a, an anti-Christ, anti-man, anti-biblical family, uh, ancestral worship-purveying organization to teach us how to love our neighbors as ourselves. I asked a friend of mine, would you have said this three-word mantra prior to 2013? He said to me, no. I said, well, why would you say it now? He said, well, because of what's happening. I said, it, could this not be an instance where we are being invited to conform to the world instead of if we have an instance where we're not uh, matching our orthodoxy, right belief with what the practice what is necessary is to repent and obey the Scripture, as opposed to embracing an antichrist ideology in order to do what the Scripture tells us to do, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Not just to love them, but to love our neighbors as ourselves. We already have a script. We simply need to obey the one that Jesus provided for us. Mm. Yeah, and when you analyze the BLM movement as, as anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-man, obviously anti-family, their statement, they want to disrupt the Western nuclear family— and then when I went through their statement, I thought, isn't that interesting? Father never appears, the word father. you got transgender all over the place. It's even interesting the Democratic National Platform uh, mentions God once, mentions Christians, like persecution of Christians in other countries, maybe once. 
or twice, but you've got transgender over and over. You've got you've got black capital B and white and brown small W small B. So it's just it's wild to see how the agenda's out there. But I've been warning people separate from the movement because it's coming for you next. It's no surprise that you bring an Antifa. These other groups they work together just fine. Now they're burning Bibles in Portland, but but this is part of the larger ideological assault we've been dealing with for years and years, and that you and AFA have been on the the front lines of. What do Christians need to get now? Why is it so critically important that we discern this rightly? How much are we really on a, a precipice right now, ready to go over the edge in our society? Oh, we absolutely are, and and really, uh, the Spirit of God have always already warned us about this. Colossians chapter two literally says, uh, Paul says, "I'm writing this so that no man may take you captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends upon human tradition." in the elemental principles of this world, rather than upon Jesus Christ. And he begins that same chapter, beginning in Colossians 2, he talks about a delusion, and then when you get to verse 8, it's full-blown captivity. And so uh, it, the, the, the reality is that the Lord invested his church in the earth to be the pillar and ground of truth. So in order for these nefarious agendas to be advanced, they have to co-opt the church. And so what's happening, the lack of discernment that's being employed, uh, really is enabling many people, many genuine people, who are genuinely concerned, but they are, in, in, in Marxist uh, verbiage, they're being used as useful idiots to advance an agenda that comes to destroy them. What, an, another example of the striking irony is that, as you uh, rightly articulated, that the BLM organization doesn't mention fathers of men even once, yet they capitalize on the dead bodies of black men. Mm. It, 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 it's astounding that this is happening, but it's happening with this pace because, as critical theorists seek to accomplish, they want to exploit historical atrocities, nothing short but atrocities, and the current tension in order to advance an agenda that's foreign to the concerns of the many of the people that are involved. Mm. Yeah, and you know, the whole say his name, say her name thing, if we listed the names of, say, the last 10 black children killed in just inner city violence, regardless of who pulled the trigger, uh, and we started naming names, the vast majority of Americans and people in the BLM movement would have no idea who we're even talking about, because those names don't seem to matter. So let me ask. Let me ask this, Abe. Uh, I'm I'm Jewish follower of Jesus, but I'm obviously less melanated, so I'm I'm a, a white American, and I, I've had though. yeah, absolutely, man. Um, in fact, I've always felt it's for whatever reason a connection with black brothers and sisters. Either you know it's a history of liberated slaves, or just kind of a, a deeper soul experience. And plus, in, in black gospel churches, they clap on the upbeat, and I'm a drummer. So I just I always enjoy the connection. But, but in, in, all, in, in all seriousness, uh, I've had callers over the years, love our broadcast, stand with me, African-American callers, who just talk about their experience, their upbringing, and, and racially, being racially profiled and things like that. And it sensitized me to growing up in a different environment. And, and friends have said, hey, we, we want to hear from you that our lives do matter. And that black lives do matter. And I've said, I absolutely affirm, of course I affirm that from the bottom of my heart, but here's why I separate from the movement. You, however, as an African-American, can speak perhaps even more forcefully than I can. I mean, people call you a sellout and Uncle Tom. I mean, this is all the, the, the racist plan from the start. But do you think that a lot of black Americans have also had it with the manipulation and, and the, the BLM violence and all of this? I do think so, but I think they're having a much more difficult time because, honestly, uh, in our country, the church has often been on the wrong side 
of issues concerning ethnic tension. I don't have to tell you about the history of, you know, major denominations dividing in order to protect uh, the dehumanization of one sect of people based on their skin color. And so there are many that are having a difficulty because they are, some are recognizing the flaws with the organization, but at the same time, they want people uh, to be sensitive to issues that are genuinely raised. And so to that, I, I often I say, and, and I, I'll, I'll tell you plainly, uh, I disavow the mantra as well as uh, the organization because really can you distinguish the three-word phrase from the organization? It's like branding. You know, can you separate just do it from Nike? Eh, maybe. Mm. Maybe not. Uh, and again, and if I wouldn't have said these three words prior to 2016 or 2013, why would I say them today? Uh, having said that, I do think it's important that we um, – respond appropriately when issues are rightly uh, presented. So one of the things I've been saying repeatedly... So tell you, tell you what, hang, hang on. Stay, stay right there. Just get a short break, and we'll be right back with Abe Hamilton. You need to check out his Hamilton Corner broadcast at American Family Radio. We'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I'm speaking with Abe Hamilton, lawyer, teaching pastor, father of five, and outspoken truth teller with American Family Radio. And uh, we're, we're talking about Abe as a black American who will not say the Black Lives Matter mantra because it is connected with the anarchist, antichrist, BLM movement. Rather, he's calling for us to respond biblically. And by the way, Abe, my team just sent me a link on uh, Right Wing Watch Facebook page. Uh, Just so happened they posted this two hours ago. Anti-LGBTQ activist and author Michael Brown calls the Black Lives Matter movement antichrist. He says, four more years of Trump will give the church time to usher in revival and awakening. Of course, the context of my quote is that four more years of Trump is not going to save America, but it could be a wedge in the door for us to to seek God for for awakening and revival. But it's got a link to the show where I am uh, quoting you and playing clips from you. So they're flipping out in the comments here, you know, calling out names of the dead is witchcraft. They're flipping out and they're saying, it's working. We're getting them provoked. Let's, we need the lions back for these Christians. So this, this is, uh, by, wow. by putting this out nationally, man, and then, and then me following and putting this out as well, we, we're definitely provoking a Jezebelic attack. No question about it. Yeah. It, it, wow. I, I didn't know about that. Um, and it's, it's remarkable, and it reminds me about what, what Dr. Melina Abdullah said and discussed it with Patrice Cullors. Uh, should we even say this publicly? Do we want to expose uh, what we're doing in this fashion publicly? Um, and, and, and it shows that it's happening. And, and coming full circle to the question you were asking me before the break, one of the primary reasons, in addition to the Marxist ties, the anti-family, anti-Christ agenda, the ancestral worship purveying, uh, why I, I, I disavow the three-word mantra as well, because it's woefully inadequate. You know, saying a life matters really is 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 insufficient to really communicate the robust uh, apologetic that's provided for us in the Scripture concerning the Imago Dei. Uh, all lives are sacred. You know, black lives are sacred, which is why uh, the response should be one that is across the board, from conception all the way through to natural death. If you really 
have a biblical understanding of the value of human life. There's no way you could be selective in your application of its value the way the BLM organization is. And I think their, their operation belies, it reveals uh, the deceptive nature of the organization's intentions. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And, and what you laid out in terms of critical theory, Marxism, all that, these are essential foundations. Hey, let's uh, let's bring a caller on. We'll, we'll interact. And then I, I want to talk very briefly about the documentary that we're part of. Uh, we go over to uh, Isaac in Boeing, Maryland. You wanted to interact with my guests. Go ahead, sir. Yes, sir. How are you two doing? Doing great. Doing well. Doing well. Great, great. I uh, just wanted to let you know, James, I, I'm a big um uh, you know, I, I really love what you're doing. Um, I love uh, just, you know, the stance that you made. I've learned so much from you. Uh, but I just wanted to speak to the special guest, you know, about, um, you know, some of your comments about uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement uh, slash organization. I think, you know, I think, you know, what you're saying for the most part makes sense. Um, and it's very true um, about the organization. And, um, but I think, that um, your description of the movement is a little uh, based upon non-truth. Um, I, I, you know, I, there's, the organization Black Lives Matter um, has less than a thousand members, and, and less than 500 of them are actually black. And you know, these people who are out there protesting or feel a certain way who are saying Black Lives Matter, and I, I know you, you, you know, you feel like they do. These people are saying, like, hey, we don't feel our lives matter. Rather, uh, it, it may not have to reflect um, police shootings, but we can look at other examples, for instance, um, within the justice system, uh, within uh, schooling, uh, within reasons why um, black Americans are in the ghettos, for instance, and how that hasn't been really uh, rectified in a major way uh, because what affects the present um, has to do with the past. Um, does that kind of make sense, what I'm saying, sir? Well, I understand what you're saying. I, I know you don't know me, but I'm from the hood. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. When you talk about teenage pregnant mothers and all of that, my, that's my mom. My mom was a 16-year-old pregnant teenage mom in the Desire Project growing up in New Orleans. But what I am suggesting is that this organization is capitalizing on people's real response to real issues and real pain in order to drive an agenda that has nothing to do with that pain. For example, if your concern is the educational system, what is protesting and burning down a mall going to do about that? The reality is the majority of the educational systems are operated at a local level. Many of them, most of them uh, in these cities are run by Democrat politicians, and I'm not trying to make this partisan or anything like that. What I'm saying, if the desire is to address educational issues, why not direct that ire as well as the the, the monetary resources that they've cultivated in the seven, four months, four or five months, $1.6 billion, to direct that at the local level. Many of the people they support, if people give to the Black Lives Matter organization, it goes through Act Blue to politicians who oppose initiatives like school choice. So I'm just using that as an example to show that, as a perfect example that you raised, that shows that this organization is capitalizing on people who, who struggle in neighborhoods like where I grew up. Where I grew up in New Orleans, you, you can't get a, a decent education unless you go to some private schools. Well, the majority of the people in the hood where I grew up couldn't afford private schools. Who's driving that? Well, the local policymakers, city council, and the state legislature. So why not make more efforts there if that is the concern that you're raising? And what I'm saying is that they're capitalizing on real pain to float in a Trojan, through a Trojan horse to bring an agenda that's foreign to the pain that they're capitalizing on. 
All right. Uh, hey, Abe, thank you for the response. Isaac, thanks for, for raising that. And it's, it's, again, it's good to articulate and bring these things out to say, yes, there are real issues that need real solutions, but what BLM is pushing, driving, is not going in that direction whatsoever. So uh, thank you, Isaac, for weighing in. I appreciate it. Uh, Abe, let's step back and talk about the larger issue of family and the assault on family. Uh, I got contacted a couple of years back by AFA to, to host a documentary that uh, actually was going to open in hundreds of theaters, but with the COVID situation, it's just more appropriate to do an online launch. So I believe it's scheduled for October 20th. Um, and then worked with the script and planning of this in his image, which is unique in, in anything I've participated in or seen, dealing with issues, transgender, homosexuality, but grounding everything in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God's purpose for humanity, God's plan for the family, and why everything flows out of that and why God's ways really are best. And aside from you being one of our two bow-tied uh, guests, <laughs> I, you and Rob Gagdon, so that adds a little gravitas, just the bow-tie is, is cool. But um, why, so, so your husband, father of, of five, why is this really in many ways, aside from our relationship with God, the foundation of all foundations, the family? So BLM is going to attack that. Satan, society going to attack it from different angles. Uh, we've got two minutes. Why is that so foundationally important? Simply put, the first institution that God created was the family. He created as the primary vehicle for the cultivation, the catechization, the evangelization, and the discipleship of individuals multigenerationally. So if, you know, the, the, the Lord seeks to establish his kingdom in the hearts and minds of people, the family being the primary unit for that happening, fathers are called to uh, rear their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So if Satan wants to interrupt that, co-opt that, and disrupt that, guess where he's going to go? He's not going to go uh, to the marketplace first. He's going to go to the family first to attack that. So what we see happening everywhere, government increases itself. If you notice it, it corresponds with a declension, a, a stepping back within the family. And so as the family is upset, it is literally the fundamental building block of society and the fundamental building block of the Lord's Church. So as a devious devil that Satan is, if he wants to destroy the Lord's Church, guess where he's going to attack? The family. And then even the foundation of that, male-female distinctions, right? So That's exactly right. Going... Male and female being the core, uh, the male-female distinctions and the marital unit being the core of the familial unit, that is where the attacks will be launched. So when you put all that together, it's no surprise the movement that is bringing anarchy to our streets and disruption to our society, the BLM movement, is anti-family, is led by openly, quote, queer activists, puts 10 times more emphasis on, on transgender issues than it does on holistic families, in fact, wants to tear those down. It's no surprise that that organization has leaders calling on spirits of the dead, and again, to, to emphasize what Abe is saying about the mantra, that they say it's not just a mantra, right? It's not just a hashtag. What, what are they saying about that? Yeah, they, they say it's not just a hashtag. They, they, they are espousing the uh, Yoruba religion, not to be confused in Yoruba language or their ethnicity, but the Yoruba religion of Odu Aifa, where they have an overarching uh, supreme pagan deity. Then you have a mid-level deity pantheon called the Orishas. And then underneath them, you have the ancestors of the Egun. They really believe that they are summoning these ancestors in order to empower them to overthrow the American establishment, the, the, the current civilization established in America. And it is, it's unfortunate because most of the people who are involved in these things, talking about not the leaders, they have no clue that this is what they mean. 
and a, a perfect example uh, of the foreign agenda being brought in through a Trojan horse. On their own website, they say whenever they gather, they do so with express purposes of loosening the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Now, what does that have to do with black people suffering in the hood? Mm. It has nothing to do with that. But if you're attacking uh, the, the foundation that God really has established, you go, you, you attack the distinction between males and females. And I don't think many people who are showing up at these protests understand that they're doing so under a banner that says we want to lose ourselves from the understanding that he made them both male and female. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and, and very few do get it, which is why we need to keep raising our voices. Hey, man, thanks for being on the front lines, doing what you do, being who you are, and really excited about our joint project coming out next month. Thank you so much. I'm excited about it, too, and, and I just appreciate you welcoming, welcoming me onto, my, onto your program, and I look forward to having you on my program as well. Yes, you've added a lot to us today. Thanks so much. God bless. God bless. All right, friends, that was Abe Hamilton on the other side of the break. I'm going to speak with Jesse Green. She and her husband, Parker, are doing some critically important pioneering work on the streets of America today. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, I've been saying for months now that with the crisis of COVID-19, with church gatherings being restricted or forbidden in certain places, that there's something redemptive God is doing in the midst of this. And one thing is forcing us to think outside of our paradigm forcing us to look at different ways to be the church when it's more difficult to go to church gatherings. And more and more believers have been taking the gospel to the streets. For some years now, I've, I've had this vision that just keeps coming back in, in, in my heart, in my mind, of, of an army of evangelists on the streets all over America, from tent meetings to standing on street corners to sharing the gospel in every different way more and more worship services taking place outdoors. Something's going on. And uh, a colleague of mine mentioned to me a couple, Parker and Jesse Green, co-founders of Salt Churches, with a missionary calling to America, moved from New York to California. And, and they have been answering this call. They have been extending this burden to bring the gospel, to bring the spirit of revival to the streets. And when I was asked about having them on the air, I said, oh, absolutely, we, we've got to do this. This is actually our first time chatting and getting to know each other. And we've, we've got the better half. We've got Jesse with us today. So, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us today on The Line of Fire. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to join you guys today. Well, awesome. So first, I'm born in New York City, raised on Long Island. How do New Yorkers end up getting called to California? <laughs> well, besides the beautiful weather and the palm trees, um, yeah, it, we were living in New York City. Um, I'm actually from Long Island myself. Where, whereabouts and, um, on the island? I'm from from Huntington. Okay, so North Shore. Got it. We lived in Smithtown yeah. towards the end of our time there. Okay, got it. Oh, yeah, that's right there. So, yeah, we um, we were living in Manhattan. We were working at a church there. And uh, we were actually doing, um, as a church, 21 days of prayer and fasting. And it was actually through that fast, 
towards the end of the 21 days, um, during worship, I just saw a really clear, profound picture of thousands of people being baptized along Huntington Beach Pier. And there were so many people being baptized that they were just turning around and baptizing the person behind them. And this was back in 2016. And so just through prayer, I heard God say that the next revival would come through the equipping of the saints. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to just kind of press into that vision, pray, bring it to our leaders, bring it to some of our prophetic friends. And within six months, we had stepped down from our leadership jobs in New York and packed up a Jeep and drove across the country with a newborn and just started to make disciples and evangelize in Orange County. What was the difference in spiritual climate, both in the believers and in the society around you, from New York to Orange County, California? They're probably the most opposite you could get, um, but in totally different ways. So New York is so post-Christian that when we would evangelize on the streets in New York, I mean, there we would literally run into people that had never heard of Jesus before, mm. which you think that that's kind of crazy in America, but um, that people had no paradigm really for a church, or um, if they did, they hated God and they hated the church. Um Whereas in Orange County, what we found was that everyone kind of was good with church, um, but Christians were really kind of asleep and not activated, um, and just kind of used to shuffling into their church services each week, but not living empowered very much by the Holy Spirit. Mm. In- interesting, interesting. And, you know, it's, there's some thriving churches in New York City and New Jersey and Long Island and yet, it, it's amazing the degree of, of rejection of the gospel that you, you experience there. And in keeping with California, uh, sometimes believers with all the fine churches there can be a bit more laid back. And, and, uh, and yet, this, the state, uh, both states, in massive, massive need of, of gospel uh, revival. So obviously you appreciate what God's doing with every church, city, leader. You know, none of us have the key, but yet there's a specific okay. mission. There's a specific mission and vision that God gave you and Parker that you've been seeking to cultivate. So what, what is, how does that vision play? You, you, had the, you had the large vision in terms of the outpouring and souls and baptisms and all of this, but specifically, how is that playing out? And then how has it been playing out since the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, so um, one of the things we're really, really passionate about is not only seeing people become saved, but actually becoming disciples of Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so for us, um, obviously, huge crusades and revival meetings, they're amazing and they're fun, and God moves in profound ways. But God was always a God of multiplication and not addition. And I really truly believe with everything in me that we'll only see a sustained revival through discipleship. And so um, what we've been doing the last few years in California is really training people to disciple people and multiply disciples in homes. And what's crazy is we've been um, starting home churches since about 2016 that have been multiplying. And 
we really, God kind of gave my husband a vision um, in New York of how to build an unstoppable church. And it was through homes and parks. And this is all pre-COVID, um, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> and so um, God just said, how, how do you make a church that can't, can't be stopped by a terrorist attack, can't be stopped by venue size, can't be stopped by a pandemic. And so now we're seeing the church after COVID is having to innovate again. And I think that, um, if anything, it's kind of an opportunity for the church to get to its old roots in Acts and to start meeting in homes, start meeting in parks, start taking the gospel out of the four walls and really let the Holy Spirit loose in society and transform the cities around us instead of just bringing people into the buildings like we've been doing the last um, few decades. Yeah, and and obviously bringing people into a building can be amazing if they get equipped to go out and do the work. But all too often, because of the nature of the beast, we fall into a spectator Christianity. And you know, I I love large meetings. I love I love house meetings. But the the bottom line is, if we're really going to make disciples, and we're really going to multiply, then there has to be that that smaller setting. There has to be the setting of of the whole body being mobilized, as opposed to what can very easily be our pattern is I show up with my family once a week for an amazing meeting with amazing people, done amazingly well. The kids love the program. The, the worship is great. The teaching is great. I give my money, and it's basically I'm, I'm part of the crowd, part of the audience, but Jesus didn't die for a crowd or an audience, but a functioning body, and every part of the body has a role to play. And with our typical environment where less than 5% of the people attending church services actually do ongoing work or the work of the local church, we're never going to turn the world around. It, it has to be all of us getting involved. So, so how have you been able to model this and, and what's actually happening? Talk is cheap. I mean, we all, we all know the better way to do it. You know, this restaurant's no good. Yeah. yeah. There's always a better way to do it, but what are you actually seeing on the ground? What's happening? Yeah. Well, I actually love what you said too about, um, like God is doing so many profound things in big churches right now where I feel like um, because they've had to move to online or smaller gatherings because of state restrictions, um, again, like I said, they're, they're becoming so innovative with um, how to actually make disciples in this season. And so what we've been able to do is actually we've been meeting with a ton of megachurch pastors and leaders on how to disciple people in smaller groups within their church, which is almost a little bit of a... Um, it's like awakening them as well to realize that maybe some people haven't been discipled for a long time there. And so one of the things that's been really key is, so we've been doing these beach revivals in Huntington, Newport, San Diego, and up and down the coast of California in these next few months. And we've been inviting church partners from those regions to come get involved, um, bring the people from their church and learn how to share the gospel, learn how to pray for people on the streets, learn how to go and share the gospel in like under five minutes with a stranger and really simple tools. And then we're encouraging them to now go take two of those people that you shared the gospel with, bring them into your home 
and just start reading Matthew together and ask the Holy Spirit to highlight things to you or to speak to you through Scripture. And so we're just starting with really simple, basic tools to get people to just have a personal responsibility of discipling the new believers that are in the harvest right now. Mm. And, and in that sense, it's really Gospel 101, right? You come to faith, <laughs> yeah. you tell your friends, they come to faith. Now, because you're a little older in the Lord, you're giving them guidance. I mean, it's, it's the way things spread. It's the organic way. So what, what's actually happened? Could you, could you give me some examples of, of people that heard the gospel through one of the meetings or a beach revival or something like that, and now they're, they're starting in the multiplication phase? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of crazy. We're only seven weeks into this whole thing with the beach revival, so yeah. everything. <laughs> That's why we're talking new. now in the infancy. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a prayer gathering at our house last night to just pray and press into what's coming next. Because, in all honesty, we thought that this was just going to be a one weekend, like evangelism conference, <laughs> and so. It really has taken a life of its own, so we're we're also learning as we go. Um, but yeah, we I mean, one of our friends just sent us a report of um, this young eighteen year old girl who got baptized on August eighth. That was only a few weeks ago, about a month ago, actually, and she got baptized August eighth. That night, um, two older women started meeting with her and explaining the Bible to her. They were going through Acts and First Corinthians with her to go through some identity stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they said to her, listen, why don't you just bring some of your friends over to her house, and we'll study the Bible together. And that week, she ended up baptizing a few of her friends, and then she's now discipling her friends, and she's a brand new believer herself. Um, right, hang on, stay, stay now, right, stay right there. And by the way, in the midst of this good report, somebody's like, "What baptize it? Who can do questions that come up?" Which is great. So we're going to hear more from Jesse Green. She and her husband Parker, Salt Churches, and they're taking the gospel to the streets. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I'm speaking with Jesse Parker, she and her husband, Jesse Green. Jesse and Parker Green. She and Parker have moved from... New York to California with a real vision of a massive harvest in Orange County, California, and with a real burden to help Christians multiply, not just add someone here and there. And look, there are churches all over America that have not seen a, a new convert, let alone someone really grow as a disciple, literally in years. And, and we, we think we're going to impact the nation like that. So, Jesse, I, I just want to interrupt the story you were telling uh, about this young woman baptized earlier in August, and now winning friends, discipling them, baptizing them. I know that some people listening will immediately get scandalized by the idea of a believer baptizing other believers as opposed to a church leader doing it or a pastor. So what I want to say to all the listeners, don't get hung up on that at all. Don't You work out what you understand is the right <laughs> way to do things, because I, 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 Jesse, I want everyone to hear 
what you're saying. And sometimes people just, they're used to doing things a certain way or they're convinced that's the right way and they won't hear the larger message. But the larger message is the church that can withstand anything, the church that has grown through history around the world has grown outside of buildings for the most part, has, has grown in structures that were hostile and yet has grown and thrived and it's been by, by disciples making disciples. That's the Great Commission. You become a disciple, and then you go and make a disciple. And our whole calling can be summarized as be disciples, make disciples. That's what everything boils down to. So this young lady now, newly saved, is already leading friends to the Lord and is helping disciple them. And you're, you're witnessing this just in the period of a month. Yeah, so within a month, we're already seeing third, fourth-generation discipleship happening within her friend group. And I think what's so interesting is um, a lot of these new believers, I mean, I'm not talking about transfer growth of someone going to a church and switching to a different church. I mean, these people are fresh out of the harvest, and they have no context for Christianity, and so they're really able to use the Bible as the context. And so when we say, like, you can follow Jesus and you can teach other people to follow Jesus, um, there's no religious background that's kind of standing in any kind of way or wall for them. So they're able to just jump right into it. And we're seeing this great multiplication happening, much like the Jesus People movement where people are really encountering God and being transformed by Jesus, and the Word is becoming alive to them, transforming their life, and they're desperate to tell their friends about it. And so um, what we're trying to do is just continue to train leaders that can train these new believers on how to make disciples. Mm. Yeah, and, and we've got colleagues that have been part of our ministry school that have networks of house churches like this that have grown, one in a Buddhist area in, in, in Southeast Asia has grown to about 250,000 people in this very same way. And we had uh, one of the brothers come in and, and work with students at our ministry school oh, a year or two ago. And basically, you know, they went into different areas. As soon as they got one person willing to open their home to to hear the gospel. So that's where we start, start inviting people into that home. And then as soon as this person is solidly saved, you raise them up and then you give them supervision, but help them to take the thing over. And again, it's bulletproof in that regard, because as long as people are solid disciples, then you, you don't need a lot of the normal structures that, that we have, because of which when those structures are challenged, we're challenged. What about the moving of the Spirit? Obviously, if the Holy Spirit's not actively drawing people, working in hearts, uh, bringing them into divine encounters through worship in the Word, then our best efforts are going to fall short. Are you sensing and seeing a fresh moving of the Spirit in the midst of your labors? Absolutely. I can't emphasize enough. I feel like I've been screaming it off the rooftops and <laughs> screaming it to anyone that will listen, but... Um, we are currently in a ripe, ripe, ripe season of harvest. I mean, I've been telling pastors, like, just try. I know a lot of pastors haven't even done street evangelism in a long time, but I've been encouraging them, like, just try to share the gospel out on the street and just see what happens. Like, the fish are biting on the hook, and 
it is just insane. I mean, I've done street evangelism for about 10 years, and I would say in the last three months, um, it's, it's almost like nine out of 10 people you share the gospel with are wanting to either be prayed with or get delivered or um, give their life to Jesus in that moment. And so it is there. The, the air is right. And um, I actually just finished reading a book by Charles Finney. And he talks about how God will use what's going on in the weather and health and all of these different conditions to actually open up the hearts of believers to the truth. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing right now. Yeah, and, and, and Jesse, um, I'm, I'm 65, so obviously older than, than you and Parker. I was a product, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you know much of my story, but I was, I was a product of the counterculture revolution in the 60s. I started getting high at the age of 14. I saw my first rock concert, Jimi Hendrix in concert when I was 13. Got caught up in the whole spirit of rebellion and, and, and drugs and rock music and the flesh. And then I got saved in 71 at the age of 16 not knowing that this was something happening around the country that we refer to as the Jesus People Movement or the Jesus Revolution. If you can find it, Time Magazine, June 71, the Jesus Revolution, it's an extraordinary read to this day in terms of what God was doing in the nation. And, and years back, looking at this years later, I, I began to realize that in the 60s, in the midst of the upheaval, the shaking with the assassinations of, of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Robert F. Kennedy with the Vietnam War, with so many things going on, the civil rights movement, which is positive, so much upheaval and shaking in the nation that young people, it just looked like they were rebelling. But a lot of it was a, a spiritual search because we would literally get high and talk about spiritual things. And then one of my friends, a little bit older than me, was at, at Berkeley University, Jewish believer, uh, he got saved during the Jesus People movement, and he said for a stretch of years, every Jewish person he talked to was open to the gospel. He said, then one day it just stopped. What I'm saying is we can look at the, the cultural people around us through natural eyes and see the anarchy, mm. see the anger, see the hatred, see the violence, and that's all evil, just like the evil of what happened in the 60s. And yet beneath it is a hurting and lost generation and society crying out for answers, and we alone have the answers. So, Jesse, we've got to seize this moment, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think sometimes when we just get so caught up with everything that's happening in the world around us, we really do lose that kingdom perspective. And like we all know, like we all quote, like God's ways truly are higher. And I think sometimes we need to just turn off our phones and turn off the news and just press in and ask God, like, what are you doing right now on the yes. earth and how can I partner with you? And yeah. I will honestly say the fruit of everything we're seeing, um, I mean, everything that's happening with Saturate OC on the beaches and in California is only by God's Spirit and it's only by His timing. He was the one that said 2020, summer, July, there was going to be a harvest. We had no idea what was going to happen with everything politically, everything racially, everything with COVID. And yet God is orchestrating just his spirit moving throughout the nation. And people are desperate for hope right now. 
Yes, and, and hope that will last, an eternal hope. And, and that's why we have to rise above the crisis. And Jesse, I love what you said. We need to just step away from the bombardment of news and bad news and negative news and, and, and concern and what's going to happen to the elections and the upheaval. And we need to get in God's presence and worship him because he's not moved right now. He's not, he's not caught off guard at all. And in fact, it's normally at times of crisis that the gospel can thrive and grow the most because otherwise we just get too complacent, too comfortable, and we lose sight of what really matters. Jesse, how can folks find out more about what you and Parker are doing, even if they live in California or just around the country? Where's the best place to go? Yeah, um, honestly, the best place is if you go to Saturate OC. Um, OC stands for Orange County, so SaturateOC.com. And you can sign up for the newsletter. We send out an, a weekly newsletter of updates of where we're going, what's happening, testimonies, stories. Um, and then there's also links to all of the social media, which includes YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. is all on that website. Um, and you can connect with our team. And there's a bunch of training tools as well if you feel like God's calling you to do something similar in your own city. So all of that is on the website right there at saturateoc.com. All right, friends, visit there. Be inspired. Be encouraged. Pastors, leaders, let's keep going to the Lord, Father. What are you saying? How, how can we maximize this moment? And I've, I've written about this in the midst of the crisis, that the goal is not to go back to normal because normal wasn't cutting it. We, we, we right. need something new and different. It's God's normal. It's, it's back to biblical normal which, as Leonard Ravenhill used to say, the church has been subnormal for so long that when it finally becomes normal, everyone thinks it's abnormal. Or in the words of Watchman Nee, by the time the average Christian gets his temperature up to normal, everyone thinks he has a fever. Let's have a fever, friend. Let's burn bright. So visit saturateoc.com. Jesse, uh, give my regards to Parker. Thanks for all you're doing. We're in this together. <laughs> 